Okay, friends, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them with me now to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Today we are concluding a very brief four-part series in the book of Hebrews as we have considered together who we are called to be as a local church family. Uh, Today we're considering the fourth core value for Redeemer Fellowship. Uh, By God's grace, as a local church family, uh, we seek to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ by delighting in Christ, by loving one another, by proclaiming the gospel, and our focus for today by serving our community. And so we're going we're gonna to begin our study of this by reading Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 16. We believe these are the very words of God to his people this morning. It says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word to our hearts and to our souls this morning. The A&E TV series entitled Hoarders first aired in 2009 and it continues to today. It's a TV show about certain types of people who struggle with compulsive hoarding. People who have a hard time letting any possession go, and who then fill their entire houses with thousands of pounds of objects, both valuable objects and many times completely worthless objects. But hoarding and hoarding tendencies are, are not a new thing. Homer and Langley Collier lived from 1881 to 1947. 
They were known as the Collier Brothers. They lived in complete seclusion in Harlem, New York. They obsessively collected books and furniture, musical instruments, and many other items as well, including just a lot of garbage. Over time, they filled their house with their possessions, so much, in fact, that every window was blocked to the very top, and each window was encased by their books, by their furniture, by musical instruments, and by garbage. The Collier brothers were actually so committed to and so protective of their stuff that they set up booby traps in doorways to crush any unwelcomed intruders. They wanted to be left alone in their house with all their belongings. They even had a secret entranceway that no one could find that, that one of the brothers would use to go in and out at night in order to find food and water to bring back for them both. Sadly, in 1947, they were both found dead in their home surrounded by an estimated 140 tons of belongings, things that they had collected over several decades. It was determined that at least one of the brothers was killed accidentally by crawling into one of his own booby traps and was crushed under the weight of all of the stuff falling upon him. Now to many of us, at least to this extreme, the, the hoarding of possessions in this way is a very strange disease. When we watch the show or when we hear of these stories, it doesn't make sense to us how anyone could really live that way. Why, why shut yourself into your own house? Why have all of these possessions to enjoy without ever using them for their intended purpose? Why be literally suffocated and crushed in your own home when there is a world outside to enjoy and to pursue? It doesn't make any sense to us. But sadly for many of us, while we can be critical of people who do it to this extreme, we at the same time ignore or are at least blinded to our own hoarding tendencies. Oftentimes the church and the Christians who make up the church don't have a category for people like this, like the Collier brothers, even while they do exactly the same thing in their personal lives and in their church communities. Sadly, too often we as God's people who have been given the immeasurable riches of God's grace, rather than celebrating and living in the good of that grace by living generous and sacrificial lives, we choose rather to hoard that grace and to actually misuse that grace to excuse ourselves to, towards living selfish and self-centered lives. Sadly, the Western church today could many times star in an episode of Hoarders. We gather and gather all of our theological books, all of our biblical teaching, all of the riches of living in America with all of its resources, all of the furniture of a busy church calendar, we gather all these things, and maybe at times, even imperceptibly, we cushion ourselves in from the world outside. Slowly, the, the windows of the church that are supposed to peer out to a lost and needy world become blocked and, and covered by all of our theological and materialistic riches. Slowly, the very doorways that are supposed to lead to meaningful interactions and relationship with the world, they are slowly blocked and barricaded, and the church creates a monster of its own making, a house with 140 tons of belongings, but nowhere to go and nothing to do with it all. But church, this is emphatically not why we are recipients of God's immeasurable grace, no, we have been given grace and mercy, not just to be a house within itself, but to be a house that is like a city on a hill, a bright 
and open and welcoming beacon that others from outside can look to and through which they can themselves become recipients of God's immeasurable grace. Over the last four weeks, we have considered our four main values from the book of Hebrews. Our main ideas each week have been very similar to the rest. We, the supremacy of Jesus calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus and then to live in a specific way. Today's main idea is simply this. The supremacy of Jesus calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to go and serve our community in his name. The supremacy of Jesus calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to go and serve our community in his name. We have two points. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus. You know, oftentimes those with obsessive hoarding tendencies, oftentimes that tendency comes uh, in his present in people who struggle with insecurity. They, they don't feel secure in themselves and so they retreat into their own home and they create a place that they can have control over. They, they don't let any possession go. They never throw anything away because they don't want to experience any loss and so they collect and hoard all that they can. Church, think with me this morning about who our God is. He is not insecure. In fact, he is the exact opposite of insecurity. He is perfectly content within himself, and he does not need to hoard anything because he is fully satisfied with who he is and what he has within the eternal relationship of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. God's security, his, his contentment, even his eternal joy is a beautiful thing to behold and it is captured to some degree by how the Bible talks to us about who God is and about where God lives. According to Hebrews chapter 1, our God is the King of heaven. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. It actually says in verse 12 that the heavens, that the entire cosmos, the universe, is the work of his hands. And it says that he could actually roll it up if he wanted to like a garment. The entire universe, like a beach towel in his hands, rolled up. Hebrews chapter 2 says that he is crowned with glory and honor. Friends, his home, his house, where he resides is in the heavens. Try to get your mind around that with me this morning. It's difficult to comprehend. 1 Kings chapter 8 says, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. Our God, the one that we worship, his home is in the heavens. He reigns over all. Talk about being secure. Talk about being content. This God is not a God who needs anything at all. He's not feeling insecure or unstable about who he is and, and what he has. No, the God that we worship, the God of our Bibles, is and he has always been perfectly happy within himself. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, says in John chapter 17 that they have always had this gloriously happy and united relationship together from all of eternity past. In church, it is actually this happiness, it is actually this contentment of God within himself that led God to create this world in the first place. 
Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10 says that he laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, but, but he created this entire world, not, not because of insecurity within himself, but rather because of the abundance of security and contentment that he already had. So when Jesus speaks of the eternal relationship of the Godhead in John chapter 17, he does not speak of any need in themselves through which they said, oh, well, let's find that need met by creating this world. No, there was nothing lacking in them. It was actually his contentment that led him to create this world. See, discontent, discontent people, insecure people hoard what they have. Insecure people don't like to share, but content people are willing to live open and inviting lies because they know that they have enough to share with those around them. Our God created this world, not, not because he needed anything from us, but because he wanted to open the doors of his house, the doors of heaven, and he wanted to share the joy of his glory with people like you and me. How generous of him. But now think about what happened next. Think about how sin happened. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and chose their own way apart from God. It, it was actually their insecurity that made them grab at what was not theirs. They fought for control. They, they wanted to hoard power and glory for themselves, and so they ate of the forbidden fruit. And friends, you know what? You and I have done the very same thing. We ourselves are not secure or content in who God is, and so we fight for control as well. We live for ourselves. In fact, all of sin, all of sin in this world against God is a hoarding of what we want for ourselves rather than being content in who he is. All of sin is us fighting to be like God, wanting to control and, and, and gain power for ourselves. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did, and it's exactly what we do as well. When you get angry at your spouse, you are seeking to hoard control for yourself. You want to be like God in that moment. When you fail to love your neighbor as yourself by hoarding your time and hoarding your gifts and your money and refusing to be generous with what you have, you are acting like your first parents, Adam and Eve, who were clinging to and hoarding what they could get. And that's the essence of sin. It is the direct opposite of who our God is. And we're all guilty of it. Our sin actually speaks of our insecurity and dissatisfaction in who we are before God. But now think about how God could have responded to us in our sin. God could have taken his ball and gone home. He could have been done with us all. He could have returned to his home in the heavens and shut out the world outside just like the Collier brothers did. See, another trait of those who struggle with obsessive hoarding is that their struggle often comes from a personal hurt or offense that has happened in the past. So someone in their past has hurt or abused them or they feel danger in the present for some reason and so they shut themselves into their homes where they can have control and not be hurt any longer. Folks, God could have done that. God could have felt threatened by our sin and he could have run away from it. He could have gone back to the heavens and boarded up the windows and barricaded and booby-trapped the doors. A God who was insecure in himself and who was lacking in abundance would have done that, but that's not what our God did. That's not what he did at all. Why? Because those who are secure and happy do not need to hoard. 
God did not take his ball and go home. No, rather, he immediately launches a divine rescue mission, a glorious plan of redemption for his people, a way through which he could continue to share of his abundance with the people that he had made and who he loved. And now, think about how generous, think about how selfless this divine rescue mission of God was. The God who very well could have boarded up the windows of heaven and remained perfectly content in himself, he chose rather to step out of heaven and into our world, the world that he had made. The gospel is the exact opposite of our hoarding tendencies. Jesus, according to Hebrews, and Jesus, according to Philippians 2 and other texts, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He He laid aside his glory. He he was not so insecure in who he was that he needed to, to cling to his position in heaven. No, he was secure enough in himself and in his father that he was able to step out of heaven. He left his home behind and he became a man. He became like the people that he had made. And scripture actually says that he was not even that beautiful or handsome of a man. Jesus was secure enough in himself to not need physical beauty in this world. And then he not only just became a man, he he lived like a human. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. It says that he needed to learn obedience. It was not easy for him to be human. He, he dealt with pain and sorrow like you and I deal with pain and sorrow. Friends, think about Jesus. Think about how he related towards those around him. Jesus could have come into this world and he could have only associated with the elite of society. Right? If he was insecure, like you and me, he would have surrounded himself with the friends and with the people who made him look strong, who made him look impressive, and who made him more popular. That's not what he did. It says that he was the friend of sinners, that he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts of society, the sinners, those who were buried by their own condemnation. He was drawn to them. It says he washed his disciples' feet. People who are insecure in themselves do not go and volunteer to wash other people's feet. Now, insecure people try to coerce other people to wash their feet, but not Jesus, not our Savior. He did not hoard glory and power for himself. No, he gave of his abundance. He was secure in who he and his his Father were together, and it changed the way that he lived. And friends, it even changed the way that he died. Jesus could have written the gospel story in a way that led him towards a a glorious martyr's death. He could have laid down his life in a way that brought immediate honor and praise. But that's not what he did. Look at our text today, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11. It says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He suffered outside the gate. See, in in Jerusalem, there there was a temple. And in the Jewish mind, according to God's design, it was the house of God here on earth. God resided in that place, and it was beautiful. It was ornate. It was impressive. It It was a powerful structure. And that's where all the sacrifices were made on behalf of God's people. And so you might imagine if the Son of God was coming as the ultimate sacrifice for his people, that he might choose, let let me be offered in the temple. 
You might think that he would want to be offered in the house of God. But no, it says that as he bore the weight of the sins of the world upon himself, he suffered outside the gate. In the Old Testament, according to Exodus chapter 29, verse 14, after the blood of the animals was offered in the temple, the flesh, all the remains, the the flesh of the bull, its, its skin and its dung were burned with fire outside the camp, a further sin offering. And so when it speaks of Jesus suffering outside the gate, it is just another way of showing us how Jesus did not hoard position and power and praise for himself. No, he stepped out of heaven and he walked a road of sacrifice and service for you and me, a road that even took him outside of the temple, that took him outside the walls of Jerusalem, and that took him up to that hill called Calvary where he was crucified for his people. What love is this? What incredible generosity and selflessness and service is this? Friends, who can love in this way? I'll tell you who. A God who is perfectly secure and content in who he is. A God who needs no help from anyone. A God who is a God of abundance and of great glory. And who out of that abundance does not hoard and keep for himself, but who lives generously towards those around him. Church, the call of Hebrews is so clearly to fix our eyes on this one. Friend, if you are feeling insecure today, if the situations of this world are troubling to you and you are feeling shaken, if you're a non-Christian and you've never put your faith in Jesus and you can't seem to find peace and security in this life, or if you are a Christian and you just feel overly troubled and you're lacking strength and purpose, God's word would call us all to fix our eyes on this God, on this Jesus, who out of his abundance gave himself for us. Why? Because it is when we set our eyes on this Jesus that we are welcomed. We are welcomed into the same security and contentment that he shares with his Father. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are made perfectly secure through the justifying work of his son. And then we are able to live out of that abundance, which is now ours as well. Now out of that contentment, which we have in Jesus and to live outward and selfless lives just as he did. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, we are called to serve our community. You know, when there is a humanitarian need in this world, when there's a hurricane like Ida that destroys significant parts of New Orleans or, or even a national disaster like, like 9-11 20 years ago now, when, when great work and service and help is needed for a long period of time, those who do that work often need to, to set up a base camp to work from. They need a place of of security that enables them to go out and serve those that need to be served. And so when a hurricane happens, those who bring relief often set up their, their food banks or their shelters, not exactly where the disaster happened, but in a location separate from the disaster, a place where they can have dry ground to store all of the food, a place where they can think and plan and even rest and then go back into the area of need. But listen, if those relief workers only stayed in the camp and took naps and ate the food that was there for others, 
If, if they never left that place and went back into the need, they would be failing miserably in their jobs, wouldn't they? Now that base camp exists in order to enable them to go out and serve. Friends, this is what we have in Jesus. This is what we have in Jesus and in his church. We have dry ground to stand on. We have a place of security and strength that enables us to to think clearly, to grow in courage, and to grow in our generosity, and then to go out with it all. That's what Hebrews is all about. The writer of Hebrews has taken 12 whole chapters to set up base camp. He has expounded on the supremacy and the goodness and the beauty and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But those things, church, are not to be hoarded by us. No, they are to lead us towards living in a very particular way. They are to lead to application and change and generosity in our lives. But but it is important. It is important to notice the order of these things. The writer of Hebrews does not start with the practical side of things. That the writer of Hebrews does not begin his letter by, in chapter 1 by talking about brotherly love or about being hospitable or about doing prison ministry or about cultivating a healthy marriage or about being sexually pure or being generous with our money. All of those things which we find here in chapter 13, we do not find in chapter 1. Why? Well, because the order of these things matters. The writer does not say, love others and be generous And then you will learn how good God is and how much he loves you. No, he doesn't say that because that's not Christianity. Christianity is the exact opposite of that. It's first, know the great things that God has done for you, the great things that you did not deserve but that have come to you through his son, and then in response, live it out. Why is that important? Well, because insecure people tend to hoard. Insecure people do not give, but secure and content people do not hoard. They live open and generous lives. They love to give of themselves and of their possessions. And so the writer of Hebrews builds us into Jesus. He is our base camp. He reminds us of how secure we are in him. And then he calls us to respond, to go. In fact, the verses leading up to chapter 13. The verses leading up to these practical instructions in chapter 13 are some of the most powerful, some of the most securing verses in the entire Bible. Look at chapter 12, verse 28. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Notice how he said, for receiving. It's already happened. We're not hoping to receive We have received it. Look up at verse 22. It says, you have, not not you are going to, it says you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Friends, talk about a base camp to work from. The writer of Hebrews says that because of the work of Jesus, we are now part of God's entire kingdom. We belong to him. Heaven is now our home as well, just like it is for him. Those who fix their eyes on Jesus, they are now citizens of a new kingdom. And it is an unshakable kingdom. Even as we live in a very shakable world, we belong to that kingdom. Talk about security. Talk about contentment. There is no more secure place to be than with God himself. You and I, as believers, we have come to Mount Zion. We are now recipients of God's abundant grace and mercy. And friends, this is the setting 
This is the foundation. This is the base camp from which we are to live. And it is because of this that we are now able to go and serve as we should. Look at verses 5 and 6 in our text. It just says very briefly, Be content with what you have, for he has said, he gives a reasoning, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's our security. Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. And that security is supposed to change the way that we live. But how? How are we called to serve our community in his name? Three ways that Hebrews 13 speaks to or at least indicates here. First, we are called to serve our community by proclaiming the gospel. Look at verses 8 to 9. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. That verse speaks of our gospel centrality. And it is so important because as we talk about the different ways to serve our community, oftentimes many churches can lose their focus on the gospel. Serving our community is so important. We are supposed to care greatly about mercy ministries and even about social justice issues, but we must focus on those practical needs through the gospel. And we must not allow those practical needs to supersede the spiritual needs of those around us. That the church is to be all about the gospel. If we do good work, if we just do good works but never share the hope of the gospel, we have failed miserably. There are people in this world that can feed the poor, but they can't feed the poor and give them the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that every act of service needs to always include a full articulation of the gospel, but it does mean that we hopefully are motivated by the gospel and that we seek to share the gospel and tie our service to the local church whenever and however we can. Second of all, we're called to serve our community by loving one another within the church. So you notice how verses 1 to 5 really seem to focus on the community within the church. It says, let brotherly, that's family language, let brotherly love continue. It says, remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. He's, he's tying us all together. He reminds us that, that a body, that the body of Christ is supposed to care for itself. So the church should be a place where members care for one another, where we show hospitality, where we show, where we support one another. And Redeemer Fellowship, thank you. Thank you for how well you do this. Thank you for how even this week when an email goes out about the Welch's house being severely flooded, thank you for how quick you are to respond and to give in order to support them. Thank you for the benevolence fund that we have and how it is continually growing so that we can care for needs like this. Thank you for being a church who values this and values each other. This is our home base. This is our base of operation. And so we need to invest in each other in order to go out as well, which is also why Sunday morning ministry teams are so important. You guys were given a card on your way in, and it has both Sunday morning ministry teams and mercy ministry teams as well. Sunday morning ministry teams are essential to us loving one another and continuing to grow in God's grace together. But now I do not think that the call of this text is only to the community within the church. No, there seems to be an even more outward focus here to consider as well. 
So the third way that we are to serve our community, we are called to serve the community around us, outside of the walls of our church. We are called to go out and to be generous and to live in a way that even invites reproach from the world. Look down at verse 13. It says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And then it tells us to do good. There seems to be an outward focus here, an outward focus beyond the local family and into the world around. Listen to this quote from William Lane. He says, the exhortation to leave the camp and to identify fully with Jesus introduces a distinctive understanding of discipleship. Jesus' action is going outside the camp and sets a precedent for others to follow. The task of the community is to emulate Jesus, leaving behind the security, congeniality, and respectability of the sacred enclosure, that's the church, leaving it behind, risking the reproach that fell upon him. Christian identity is a matter of going out now to him. It entails the costly commitment to follow him resolutely despite suffering. This is now the calling of the church to celebrate the security and the contentment that we have in Jesus, to fully identify with him, even in a way that enables us to leave the comfortable enclosure of this place and to go out and serve radically in his name and for his glory to serve our community in a way that draws attention to Jesus, to serve our community in a way that the world might not understand, to serve our community in a way that even invites questions about who we are and why we serve like we do, and that inevitably will demonstrate how different we are from the world around us and will inevitably bring about reproach and persecution even. But this is what we are called to do. Because this is how God intends to reach the world through his church, but with his grace and mercy. And so church, we want to be a church family that serves our community. We do not want to hoard all that we have. No, we want to give of ourselves and our resources in a way that demonstrates how secure we are in the abundance of Christ, how content we are in his kingdom. Redeemer Fellowship, this is actually the area that I have been praying, that we have been praying most about recently. I think by God's grace that we have done fairly well at delighting in Christ, at loving one another and prioritizing fellowship groups and in proclaiming the gospel and pursuing discipleship together. But I think that we can grow in our heart and in our commitment to serve our community outside. This burden was, was growing before COVID and we were implementing certain things and then COVID hit and it has just put a pause on so many of these areas. But we're very excited today to announce that there are, there are new five, five new mercy ministry teams that we are starting that are being led by members of our church that we would love for you to join and to participate in. These are all areas that, of, of burden and of need that we see God's heart for in his scriptures. We have a new ministry team for caring for the poor. Ryan and Danielle Burdicker are going to be leading this team as they seek to find strategic ways to partner with other ministries in our area to care for the poor and to provide in ways uh, that we can't individually, but the church can together. We're going to start a ministry team for care for the widow and for the elderly. And so Brad and Tracy Pope are going to be leading this ministry to care for those who have lost loved ones, or who are growing older in age and oftentimes need support and even simple friendship. 
We're going to start a ministry team called Care for Those with Special Needs. This is going to be led by Lindsay Johnson, and, and her heart is to, to meet families who have uh, children with special needs and to support them and to help them. It's probably going to start with just a simple uh, um, buddy system so that those with special needs can go into Redeemer Kids without, without their family needing to be by their side. But hopefully it will develop into even more than that, where we can support many families who uh, are burdened, who have the privilege, but also the, 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 the wearying task at times of caring for their children with special needs. We're going to start a mercy ministry for care for the orphan. We could not be more grateful for how our church has answered our prayers and has given us so many families who have a heart to foster children or to support those who are fostering children and to adopt children. What a beautiful demonstration of God's heart on on a church level as we seek to to live for his glory together. We're so thankful for people like the Trinzies who are are living in this way and many others who are, are prayerfully considering it as well. And we're grateful for Sheila Nottage who will be leading this ministry and helping us to care for those in our church who pursue these things and those outside of our church who need our help as well. And then finally, we're going we're gonna to start a mercy ministry uh, called Just Care for the Community. Uh, this is just an opportunity to, to find ways to practically help those in our area. And so I'm friends with Mike Smith in our area, our state representative, and he often emails me and says, hey, has, hey, there's a need over here. Do you have anybody who could meet this need? Drew Chapman is going to lead this ministry. Uh, and so when those needs arise, arise, he can lead some of you to go and help uh, wherever that may be. Redeemer Fellowship, when, when you think about the Collier Brothers, When you think about how they secluded themselves into their own house, you might first think that they were probably maybe simple people who who didn't have anything to offer, that they had no skills or no gifting, or that they weren't people, persons, that it just wasn't easy for them to be around other people. That's actually not the case. They both had studied extensively at Columbia University. They had degrees in engineering and in chemistry. They were extremely musical. Langley was an accomplished musician who played professionally and even performed in Carnegie Hall. They had gifts. They had resources. But yet somehow, for some reason, they decided to hoard it all into their own house and ultimately suffocated themselves by it all. Oh, church, may we not hoard all that God has given us our many gifts, our many resources. May we find our security in Jesus and may we open the doors and the windows of our church family. May we walk into the world around us, outside the gate, and may we serve our community in Jesus' name. May we be the hands and feet of Jesus to a world that desperately needs to hear the good news of the gospel. And when they don't currently have ears to hear, may we serve their practical needs in a way that softens their hearts and warms their hearts hearts to Jesus and to the church and to the hope that is found only in Christ. Amen. May it be.